is WMPG. My name is Dr. Ann, and this is Safe Space, a show that is devoted to subjects that are hard to talk about because they make us feel vulnerable, ashamed, or afraid. And because these subjects are hard to talk about, they may also be hard to hear. The content of tonight's show may not be appropriate for all listeners. Listener or parental discretion is advised. My guest tonight is Gina Rourke. We'll be talking about masturbation. Gina is the owner and founder of Nomia Boutique, a sensuality boutique and resource center right here in Portland, Maine. And Gina is also a sexuality educator. She does talk, talks at universities and colleges all over Maine. Welcome to Safe Space. Thank you so very much. I'm delighted to be here. Me too. So I want us to start out by hearing a little bit about you. How did you get started working um, as a sex educator and as someone who runs a sensuality boutique? It was and this is always sort of the question I get all of the time and is in many ways really difficult to answer. It, it is, I would say, the most well-considered decision I have made in my life mm-hmm. in that it involved both my sort of professional history, my political commitments, and also some of my more personal concerns um, in terms of choosing also where I would do this kind of work. My prior life had involved many years on the PhD track on my way into higher education um, with an emphasis on women's history, the history of labor, radicalism, and so on. And I had also been involved in various community and union organizing activities. Hmm. Um, Throughout that process, I became certainly convinced that my vocation was as an educator and an organizer, but that higher education may not be the best sort of location for me to do the work I wanted to do. Um, And because I had been so focused on doing social and economic justice work in the public sphere, translating into the world of doing sexuality was in some ways just a flipping of the coin, so Mm -hmm. to speak. And so I tend to think I went from organizing in the public to organizing in the private with sort of the commitment along the way that when you are using education as a tool um, for growth, it also helps enhance communication and community building across the board. That's so great. So it's really coming from an empowerment of women kind of stance, or empowerment maybe of everybody. For everyone, you know, especially when it comes to the question of sexuality and its history. It's very complicated history in this country. Indeed. So I want to actually ask you a little bit about the history of masturbation. In particular, you know, masturbation in some ways is the perfect subject for this show because it is so not talked about. Mm -hmm. It is so everywhere. Mm Mm-hmm. And no one can really even acknowledge they're doing it or thinking about it. Um, And I wonder if you might share with me your understanding of why that is. Why are we so afraid to talk about this subject? Right. And it was it was actually funny. I was joking with a colleague today of like ask a historian a question about of of that magnitude. And I had many synaptic breaks this afternoon. So I wanted to start with sort of invoking Freud, who said the subject of masturbation is inexhaustible. Okay, so we can be here for a long time and keep going. Um, as far as the history, um, I think, you know, probably not that many people would be aware of the fact that, like, you could, as, as cultural history goes, you can actually date the problem of modern masturbation to the early 1700s. And from early 1700s to the turn of the century for, ni- you know, about early 1900s, 1920s, masturbation was seen, especially by the medical community that was building itself, as a great social ill um, that would lead to, among other things, impotence, um, infertility, insanity, um, and so on. And so there was a great sort of like horror and terror um, around masturbation. Based on what, though? I mean, there was certainly no evidence to suggest that. So how did those ideas even... 
That's why it's enormously complicated. Let me back up because I think to order sort of understand those kinds of histories, it's an intersection between sort of medical history, religious history, and also the history of the sort of political and economics of a given moment. Um, scientifically, they didn't understand very much at that time, obviously, about reproduction, physiology of reproduction. They were focused on the male body. Um, sperm was, you know, sort of semen was seen and could be evident, um, but whether or not that was a perpetual resource was in question. So ah. if you were expending that energy, leading to, of course, exhaustion, um, the continued expense of that energy might lead one to be less productive um, oh, and a whole host of other things. And so the more that you would do that um, and waste your seed so to speak, the less productive a member of society you would be, which is incredibly important when you're talking about the advent of modern capitalism. Oh, I see. Uh, so back argue. to your labor history, yes. Gina. <laughs> so it all ties back to the rights of the worker. It does. Uh, yes. <laughs> Fascinating, though. I So that makes sense. So there was a fear that the man would sort of waste his seed and then have less of this very precious resource. Right. And then also in there, I mean, I'm, I'm surely the message of the church, too, was that this was sinful and bad. And how did it come to be that masturbation would be considered sinful or bad? Well, I think with the obvious, and this is where I get weak because my area of like religious history is somewhat limited. Um, there's a certain irony in terms of where the name Nomia came from. Oh, I don't know. Yeah, and that's rather an ode to my Ph.D. past because we carved the word Nomia out of the word antinomian. Um, and this goes back to sort of two cultural strains within this country. And one would be called the Puritan ethic, which we in New England, of course, know quite well, yes. which is there is a separation between your spirit and your flesh and the emphasis upon delayed gratification, hard work, productivity, and so on. And the general mistrust of the body and its pleasures. Pleasure. Right. Exactly. So the spirit is good and the flesh is bad. And the flesh is bad. Now, antinomianism... Uh -huh. um, so it goes back to the very first major crisis that rocked the Plymouth Bay colony where Anne Hutchinson was leading her version of scripture with women mostly and some men um, around the idea that you could have access to the divine directly. You did not have to be subject to moral law, that God was within your flesh um, and uh -huh. within your body and with your understanding with community. And so our Puritan founders did not take kindly to this. Right. And she was therefore banished. But at not, at not after a very long trial where she was, you know, they would charge her according to theological rules that her vision would lead to licentious, bad, immoral types of behavior. Oh. So some scholars later have said that, you know, within the U.S. we have two different kinds of ethics, the Puritan ethic, which we're very used to, and sort of the guiding ethos for... Became sort of, the dominant ethic. And is the dominant ethic. Yeah. But then there's this other side that is sort of this rapture of the body and the material... Um, uh-huh. And that was called antinomianism? Or? Yeah. Or we would refer to... That was sort of the, you know, the you know, because it is sort of a rejection of that moral law and authority. And it's quite scary to an idea, you know, of a sort of modern industrial bureaucratic state. So her name was Anne Hutchins. Yeah. And I don't know if Wikipedia is right about this, but... Uh, it does, and she was also one of those big um, advocates of separation of church and state. And if Wikipedia is correct, her ancestors include George Sr. and Jr. Oh, I see. Which I always <laughs> thought was really quite funny and ironic. <laughs> I see. Okay, so um, coming, uh, having come a long way, obviously, since the 1700s, mm -hmm. um, what is your view of masturbation? How, what do you, what's, how do you understand its value, and why is it worth talking about? Well, I think, I mean, we can sort of, if I can backtrack a little bit to sort of say at least there was some changes within the turn of the century and that masturbation has begun to be seen within sort of scientific communities as something that everybody does. So there's legitimacy there. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, the way that 
we view it is, I mean, quite simply, this a normal activity that the majority of people will engage in and that it is nothing to be ashamed of. It's a fairly natural process. Yeah. I'm sort of like going back because, I mean, even I think according to the Kinsey report and following up on that, every study that has been done since is 90% of men will say, yes, they do masturbate. And it varies for women. That would be 60 to 80% of women will acknowledge that, yes, they too, in fact, do masturbate. It is the most common form of sexual behavior that people engage in and can also be a source of great learning. Um, and can, I mean, for us, every sex educator, every sex counselor will all say that the key to having good sex is having good sex with yourself. Mm -hmm. um, the so, key to it. Yes, very much. And that's much. because you need to know what you like, what, what gives you pleasure. How, in what way is it the key? The key is precisely that. Okay. Um, I mean, one, there is the pleasure of just in, you know, this is, I think, part of the reason it was police so much is being that it is okay and not only that, but important to be able to have your private pleasure time. Um, mm -hmm. So it is, a key, you know, not only knowing your own body, what turns you on, but also, you know, your erotic map, because that is not fixed at one particular moment. So throughout one's life, what is going to turn a person on is going to change. It will not be the same from when you're 20 to when you're 40 to when you are 75. Mm -hmm. And so on. So masturbation is actually a real key to building your sort of sexual self-confidence and self-esteem. And sort of the more comfortable one is with that practice, the better situated one is to be able to have that, you know, in play in their partner life. My guest yeah. tonight is Gina Rourke. This is Dr. Ann on Safe Space. We're talking about masturbation and Gina's very masturbation positive view <laughs> of this activity that we are all engaged in mm -hmm. at various times. So, um... I wonder if you might share with me sort of what some of the common myths are about masturbation, because mm -hmm. I, I think given whenever something is hidden and not talked about, right. myths persist. And I think that's where, like, obviously the root of the shame is, and so sort of naming that is really important. I think frequently most people assume that masturbation is not sex at all, um, oh. or if they do see it as sex, it is always less than partner sex. Uh -huh. um, the problem there, too, later on can be that between partners... Um, who are committed, if one person is masturbating and the other is not, it can actually oftentimes be seen as a form of betrayal, which is really unfortunate. Um, it, betrayal because you're not focusing on me if, if I'm the non-involved partner because I feel like you're being selfish or because you're leaving me out or... Leaving me out, maybe fantasizing about something else. I'm not oh. included. So another person's privacy in the context of a partnership is threatening. Um, or can be viewed as threatening. Uh -huh. if, and I think a lot of that does have to do with like the root of how people perceive masturbation. There may be obviously far more other complicated issues involved. I, let me, I'm sort of to jump forward because I was going to say one of the positive things about masturbation can be that, I mean, when people have studied couples who've been together for a really long time and who have reported having a very vibrant, active sex life, what's also true is that the folks in those partnerships are also reporting having active masturbation. Uh -huh, lives right. and so right. that they're, they're just and that's a part of it generally generally speaking so what they yeah. do in their private time they also bring back together and yeah. that's sort of an accepted right and I a, can, important part it also seems to me that masturbation while your partner it watches is a wonderful way to teach your partner about what works for you what Precisely. you'd like Precisely. So a, it can be very intimate yep. if you choose to make it that. That can be true for couples who are new to learning one another or even couples who've been together for a long time um, where that may, you know, such a such an act can be incredibly vulnerable, um, mm -hmm. but right. also incredibly instructive. Yeah, 
Right. Okay, so if, we, if we're look, working through the myths here. So the first one was is it doesn't even really count as sex. Right. Or it's less than. Less than. The second one is that it might be a way to betray your partner. Right. What else? Obviously, as part of that is a, that it is selfish. Um, the right. shame associated with it has a very long history in terms of religious prohibitions. Um, and I think some of the more subtle ways that people run into this is that, okay, well, maybe I And there's a couple of versions of this of like, okay, I can understand that masturbation is sort of necessary and we all do it, but one's relationship to it is very urgent. It's not an act of self-love, but it's like, okay, I'm going to go and get it done. Huh. Um, rather than it being an important part of your life in and of itself. Is that, a, I wonder if there's a gender split around that, that urgency. I'm not, not that I have seen. In my years in doing this, not that I have seen. That's interesting. So help me understand it because I don't think I'm fully getting it. So the feeling is that because some people view it as urgent, that's supposedly bad? Well, it's a question. It's sort of like they can accept it as a normal normal thing. Okay, I all, we all have sexual needs. I'm going to go take care of business. But not at the same time necessarily see it as a fundamental part of their sexual self-esteem or their sexual identity. I see. It's sort see of like something saying? you have to take care of, but it doesn't, it's not Exactly, celebrated. exactly. It's Got kind of like it. going to the dentist, you know, I or <laughs> not quite that. <laughs> but if there's that sense of urgency, it's the difference between taking like, you know, that couple of minutes. That's a comparison minutes. that I've never heard before. I know, Gina, exactly. It's a bad analogy. Um, but there's a difference between doing like a you know a 20 minutes you know session um right. to a two hour session um right. of self-loving and sort of playing with your mind body connection and learning and sort of taking you know your own sexual self seriously in some ways it's really about how relational is it right are you in a relationship with yourself that is loving well put very that well is, put that is really attuned right or not right or is it just like flossing Right. <laughs> and, you know, sometimes we all, everyone needs to floss, you know, like, that's right. the analogy. We should um, all be flossing more, no doubt. Right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and I think, you know, like, I, and related to that, too, is like some of the acceptance of it in sort of standard culture is the idea that it's all okay, but in moderation. Yes. We understand. And I guess I always wonder, what does in moderation mean? Well, um, that suggests that there's a fear that it could get out of control. Right. And there's, yes. Yes. And so can it? That's a longer, yeah, that would be a follow-up conversation. I, I mean, there's like, that gets into, I think, questions around um, sexual addiction, yeah. um, per se, or um, excessive use of pornography and so on. Uh -huh. um, right. Some, I, certainly some young men will ask me in my work, right. um, I fear that I've become compulsive about it. Frequently, yeah. And I've heard many people, especially, you know, younger men, um, but across the board, anybody's like, what is too much? Yes. And I think the general rule of thumb is like, you know, if it interferes with your work or with your life in any particular way, then, you know, maybe yes. You're like if you're running home or in your relationships. Right. Um, but as long as it's not interfering with the things you value and care about in right. your life. And it's not harming relationships in any way, shape or form. Right. By all means, pleasure is pleasure. In fact, in psychiatry, that's how we define what is or is not a disorder mm -hmm. is whether or not it actually interferes. It doesn't interfere with anything. It's mm -hmm. not considered a problem. Right. Okay. And I wanted to add also, like, you know, when we're talking about myths, um, there are some gender distinctions when it comes to myths and negative attitudes when it comes to masturbation, because it, in, in a lot of ways, and you can see this in like, you know, stand-up comedy, on sitcoms and so on, male masturbation is far more normalized in the sense of it being discussed. How it is discussed is really the question. It is the stuff of humor, of jokes. You can just begin to think about all of the slang terms one knows mm -hmm. for male masturbation. And I think underlying it, there tends to be this sort of like 
wink nod presumption about masculinity where, well, you know, men will be those oversexed men. Right. And for women, it is different um, because there, for women, there will be sort of an acknowledgement of masturbation, but there is a certain kind of, um, I'm going to put this, a far more negative connotation that women who are masturbating are masturbating too much or doing so because, you know, they're either desperate, they can't get a, you know, there's a certain heterosexual normativity involved in that, to be sure. They can't get a man to please them or they are, you know, sexually frustrated or dysfunctional or the other side, oversexed. Right, so it reflects badly on them, yes. one way or the other. And there's a much more negative association with female masturbation from what I have seen. Yes, and I'm sure that's it's not coincidental, therefore, that fewer women masturbate. And the shame around it and the difficulty to talk about it is is fairly huge for yeah. a number of women. Yeah. yeah. This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Anne. This is Safe Space. And my guest is Gina Rourke. We're talking about masturbation. So I want to move now to kind of some of the contemporary... Um, controversies about masturbation in the in the adult world, and, and the first one I want to ask you about is um, is actually it's not so much a controversy. That's really the wrong word, but issues that people deal with with it. So if okay. you have a woman who who comes into your store, say, mm-hmm. and she's struggling with the burden of all this um, all these kind of taboos that she's taken in over years. How do you, but she's, she wants to try something. Mm-hmm. She, she's scared and she's shy. Mm-hmm. What do you do to help her feel comfortable and kind of give her permission to really explore what will work for her? It's, it's difficult for us in the context of, you know, being in a retail environment with the kind of limited dialogues that we can have with people at a given moment. Um, mm-hmm. We can ask initial questions and just really listen to the person in terms of what their concerns are, because everybody is different in terms of what they're bringing. Sometimes it's a question of not having had good education around just basic anatomy of pleasure. It never stuns me or it never ceases to amaze me yeah. how few women know their own bodies. Um, and the names mm-hmm. of their body parts. Um, so first and foremost, we may start and begin there. And then beyond that, I mean, there's some actually really wonderful literature. And it's it's funny. Yes, we do sell toys and so on. But I tend to be of the school of thought of I would rather have a conversation with somebody, find out where they're at, and recommend literature that they can go and spend some time with, um, find out if they've had an orgasm or not. If I hear frequently that somebody says that they are not sure that mm-hmm. kind of usually indicates to me that they probably have not. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we begin there in some like certain books that might speak to them personally more. So they sort of spend some time with literature to see what voice is going to speak to them. Above all else, it's just a question of creating an environment where people can feel listened to. Um, yeah. And I mean, for a woman to come into a store alone. and talk to... Yeah, I mean, what courage yeah. that must take and confess to a complete stranger that she doesn't know she's ever had an orgasm. Frequently, yeah. What a ter- I'm sure it's a very heart-poundingly terrifying experience for these women. It is. And I mean, I think, I know for me, and it's when I talk to my staff, I will say just from our perspective that it, it it's what makes us wake up in the morning and at the same time because our comfort level, given what we do, can be so high that it's easy for us to forget what it was like to walk into a store like this for the first time. Mm-hmm. So we're constantly sort of paying attention to ourselves and listening to the person who's walking in the door. And so trying to meet them where they're at. So, in a, in, you know, in answer to your question, it's really an individual and subjective thing. Because some people will come in and, you know, God bless them. I love this kind of confidence. Like I have had women who will walk in and say, okay, I've never had an orgasm. I've had it. Let's get to it. What do yeah. I need? Right. Um, and 
we've, we've got crossed from the threshold. There. They're we've done. They're in. <laughs> they walked. They're ready to go. For others, it's a little different and a little more delicate. And it may be a kind of a context where sometimes we, I have done private consultations with folks, um, and it will be more of an involved, numerous visits, numerous conversations when the store is quiet, and we can have those kinds of more intimate things. Mm -hmm. And then there will be moments where. There may there are certainly issues that are well beyond my pay grade as an educator, and we frequently refer out to um, sex positive therapists in the community. I see. So when you called yourself a resource center, that's the kind of thing you mean. Yeah. So if someone yeah. wants psychological help or therapy, right, you, you, they can ask you for a referral, right? And there may be in conversation we may learn things that they have never told their medical providers, for example, that suggest to us that they may want to see a medical practitioner as well, that there may be other kinds of conditions in play. They might have pain or right. a history of abuse or something like that. Precisely. Yeah. So wonderful that, that you exist, that that's a place that people can go because they can come in there for free. Right. And it's an enormous honor. I mean, it really is a profound honor. I, it really does sound that it is one. Yeah. So I want to talk to you a little bit now about vibrators. Oh, yeah. Because um, I know that for women who've <laughs> never had an orgasm, this is often right. a quick route there. Right. And um, oh, let's see. There's so much I want to ask you about them. <laughs> you know, so one quick question. I think people have a lot of fears about vibrators. Right. Maybe, we could, maybe you could just tell me how you think about vibrators and their role. Before so we affirm what's positive about them before we get into some of you know people's fears about sure, them. Sure, sure. Um, the history of vibrators are, is amazing because it sort of goes back to that sex negative culture because it was for women who had not achieved an orgasm. There were the there was the day where Freud would have acknowledged it was a clitoral orgasm, but for women who relied on that, they were sexually immature. Right, um, and only sexually it was mature less women. Than. Yes, less than and again dysfunctional. So um, they would be sent to their doctors who would be sort of, you know, would be doing manual stimulation to bring them to orgasm to release it because it was considered a dysfunction, something that needed to happen. Doctors, Those days feel so long ago. Oh, so long ago. That. Can you imagine that? I know. And the reason the vibrator came into being was because doctors really didn't like the work and the vibrators helped them get it done quicker. Um, I see and the doctor's a, assistant. Yes, exactly. Wow. And so there's a much longer, somewhat entertaining and very telling history behind that. For us, what vibrators are is, you know, quite simply, it's just an extra sensation tool. What it physically does is bring more blood to the area. And when you're talking about areas that is like condensed with thousands upon thousands of hypersensitive nerve endings, um, what it will do is increase that stimulation and sense of sensation and pleasure. Uh -huh. um, so it's very simple. Sometimes it is for clitoral. Sometimes people use it for other things. It is a myth to think that only women like vibrators. Men yeah. enjoy them as well, enormously, because it's pretty much anywhere the body wants to experience pleasure, bring in that extra sensation. So okay. we sort of begin with that um, as sort of physiologically what's happening and what you can do with it. Some of the myths around it are is that vibrators, you know, if people use a vibrator, they can become desensitized. It will you know, kill nerve endings. Um, they will become addicted to their vibrator and won't be able to achieve an orgasm any other way, none of which is really true. Mm -hmm. um, so let's talk a little bit more about that in depth because yeah. I know I know that some people do experience that it, they feel a little desensitized or at least that they get so attached mm -hmm. to how easy mm -hmm. pleasure is with a vibrator right. that, then it, that other things then going back to sort of purely manual stimulation feels like work. Right. Or feels slower. It takes a little bit more time. Yeah. Right. And, and do you find that, is there a time period in which people might want to not use their vibrator if they want to come back to that sort of more sensitivity? Is that something that's real or is that just... Oh, it's actually, yeah, it's quite real because I've heard that from so many, it doesn't cause uh -huh. any nerve damage whatsoever. The body wants to go to where it's going to experience pleasure. Uh -huh. um, and sometimes there's like 
a timing issue. You know, if you're if one is trying to sort of have a little bit of pleasure before they go off to work, they may not have that extra 20 minutes, mm -hmm. half hour, 45. So there you go. Um, at the same time, I mean, if people are concerned about that, I tend to say they can alternate their routines um, and only use it on a few different occasions. If it has been a while where somebody's using a, has only used a vibrator for a long period of time, they can do some experimentation, but usually one's sensitivity returns within seven to 10 days to what it was before the vibrator was first introduced. I think it's just more a question of like wanting to go where it's going to be fun. Right, so, exactly. Yeah. Just want to let people know the content of tonight's show may not be appropriate for all listeners, and so parental discretion is advised. Coming back to that question, so with um, with vibrator use, uh, what about the question of addiction? People feeling like they, I've had people tell me that they can't stop using it. They just have orgasm after orgasm after orgasm until they actually start to feel some burning pain from it, and they worry about that. Burning pain? Yeah. I would ask about that. Is that a burning pain? Is the well, a part of me like wants to get practical and ask: Is the thing itself actually too hot? It may well be. Yeah, and then that would be like <laughs> the have engine. a couple. Exactly, the engine is self overheating. I've actually heard of that with a couple of them. In which case, have a few on hand for backup. There you go. Yeah, um, I think. I, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't mean to be flip. I'm actually, you know, I do want that to yeah, be sort of a serious, quick question. It because, is actually people. Yeah. That I've heard this from more than one person. They were quite worried about it that okay. they had somehow not been able to stop, and that you know. I think it tied into fears of being punished for doing something bad in a way okay. that they were then having this pain and they were worried about that. Oh, but it they, sounds like it's, you haven't heard that often, so maybe it's not I actually that haven't of... heard that often in terms of, I mean, for burning or something like that, it really, I would ask very practical questions in terms of the toy, just mm -hmm. to make sure. And if somebody's working with the cheap thing or they, it's been on for too long, whether yeah. it's plug-in or battery operated, you want to make sure it's, you know, still safe to use because um, right. you are talking about a motor. Right. And especially if it's under the covers and you've got heat and insulation in there, that's going to make things kind of uncomfortable. That would then be a question of like paying attention. And I right. think that raises a, a deeper question of, you know, enabling a conversation around. So what was going on that one might not notice if that was happening yes. to themselves um, and right. find out? Yes, you have a very eminently practical <laughs> Sorry, I'm thinking about it. Like, yeah. It makes sense. <laughs> so another concern that I want to ask you about is... Um, People feeling like they sort of override themselves, mm -hmm. that no matter how they're feeling, they and a pleasure with a vibrator is so easy and so quick, they can just override it. And I wanted to ask you what your own perspective is about that. This is in terms of an override because, again, I don't mean to short circuit. I keep sort of repeating myself in terms of the body is going to want to experience pleasure. Mm -hmm. If somebody's overriding it, my question is what is it that one is overriding? Um, one of the common things, and I, when I do masturbation workshops or talk about how to have good sex, frequently women who are having a well, I always invoke mainstream television or any kind of porn for that matter, and frequently when you hear certain sort of those high-pitched sounds that women see or that use your representative, like that's oftentimes a representation of a woman holding her breath. Wouldn't do it on the air for the moment, but I will emphasize that sort of like you can imagine the yeah. ha ha ha. And what that is doing frequently for many women is sort of short circuiting um, their head from their genital sensation. So it's a way to sort of hold your breath, get the mind out of the way so that you can focus on receiving sensation. Because what might be going on in the mind is I'm taking too long to have an orgasm. I don't know what I look like when I have one. 
I'm, you know, my partner doesn't want to be here. My butt is too big. The dishes need to be done. The kids can hear or whatever else. I mean, fill in the blank. Yes. Um, So holding the breath or perhaps always going to a vibrator to override if that's what's going on. Then the question is, okay, so what is it? And is that something you want to pay attention to? To a certain extent, I would want to honor somebody's choice. If they just want to go for it, experience the pleasure, given the context, by all means, do what feels good. Because yeah. sex is good for you. I want to come I, back to what you were saying, though, because we only have a little bit more sure. time, and it was really provocative. So you're saying that for women who hold their breath during sex, that there's some way that that reinforces a a disconnect. It can do a mind-body split. Like to have a full body for, that's why it's sort of like tantric methods or, I mean, breath work is complicated. Um, but one of the quick and dirties that I sort of say to people is it's, it's amazing how often people will not fully breathe and certainly be breathing from their bellies during sex. Um, and uh-huh. when I've done this in workshops for women, I cannot tell you how many times I've seen women just sort of nod their head and go, mm-hmm, yeah, I do that. And the description of that process is, is fairly commonplace. Yeah, and your idea is that they're doing it actually on purpose to shut off some kind of negative message that they're struggling with. It's to get mind. the head out of the game. It's to try to get the head out of the game. Because one of the things that women who are multi-orgasmic, well, one of the things that separates them um, for women who are not is that there is no mind-body disconnect. They have the ability to fully breathe and to focus 100% completely on receiving the pleasure. And their mind is... And their mind is engaged. Is with the program. Already, there is no fissuring going on. And so what, so if a woman is someone who has a habit of holding her breath, what do you tell her about how she might begin to breathe or how she might begin to work with the negative messages to integrate them? Uh, that's where taking the time um, and using masturbation as a form of self-love and self-knowledge is a really great exercise. I mean, I love the idea of doing masturbation journals. I mean, I always recommend that in terms of like mm. what's going on. What is a masturbation journal? What happens? What's coming up? This will confront directly all of the ideas that we have that sex is only always going to be Ooh, ah, ecstatic, fantastic. Sometimes it's not. I mean, sex is a language with which we can communicate a variety of emotions. So during one's solo play and sort of like experimentation and pleasure, one might find that they are going to come up with feelings or emotions that might be uncomfortable. Right. If they pay attention to what's going on in their mind and sort of slow it down and begin to breathe, it could express grief. It could express loneliness, loss. There may be other things going on there. It may not. Um, but to be open to that and to sort of write it out and learn. Okay. Yeah. And and that sounds like a really wonderful idea. And also with the breathing, do you help people take deeper breaths or slower breaths? Or is it just like breathe normally, stop holding your breath? Deeper breaths. It's just sort of focusing on deeper breaths. It's also a nice intimacy building technique with partner sex. If you notice a partner doing it to just sort of say, hey, baby, breathe. That's wonderful. That's a perfect place to stop. So if somebody wants to come to your store and learn more about it, what's your address? Do you have a website? We do have a website that I will always admit is sort of painfully outdated, but it at least gives a general idea and address and hours, and that is nomiaboutique.com. And we are down in the old port and located on the second floor, so sort of lower part of Exchange Street, 24 Exchange. And if women are listening to this show and feeling shy, you have some women-only hours, We do. On Thursday nights from 5 to 8, it is our women-only hours. Um, and frequently people will come in as the first time then, and then they've learned when they walk in that they can, and they frequently do, come back any other time. That's great. Thanks for coming to Safe Space. Thank Gina. you so much for having me. Great. My thanks also to Jen Hodston for mixing the sound, Maurice Lennon for the music. If you have a topic or a suggestion that you would like to request to be on Safe Space, please email me at drannwmpg at gmail.com. That's dr.annewmpg at gmail.com. Next week on Wednesday, it's 